To me, it felt like a moment between me and this beautiful predator. It wasn't for the media or the papers or, or anything like that. That's the first question. Did you take a photo? And so it immediately puts you on the defensive because when you say no, people say, well, it didn't happen. You're on the back foot of what's your little story. Welcome to Big Cat Conversations. We speak directly to people who've encountered one of Britain's big cats. We also discuss the bigger picture. I'm Rick Minter, and thanks for joining me. These are going mental. Welcome, this is episode 65 of Big Cat Conversations. You have just heard the sound of geese descending on the coastal marshes of Suffolk in November 2021. The main types of geese arriving on these marshes in the autumn include white-fronted, pink-footed and brent geese. What they also have for company, it seems, is a lurking predator because a black panther was watched for five minutes as part of the video clip that we have just heard the audio from. It was taken on 21st November at 4.15pm, and we can now hear from the witness, Frazier, who was with his wife, Rue, at the time. And this recording with Frazier is happening just nine days after that event. So, Frazier, thanks for getting in touch, and welcome to the show. Hello, Rick. Thanks for sending that video clip. And I know it's um, a sort of grainy, amorphous black shape in the marshes, (laughs) but you saw it very well with Rue, and we're going to hear about that. Before we hear about the sighting, did you know about potentially big cats being around? How much of a shock was it to you? Obviously the sighting, and to be honest, the days since the sighting, there is still a remnant of shock about it. But obviously growing up, in Suffolk and being married to a lady from Norfolk, dare I say, hmm. I am used to the idea of big cats being around. It's something that I find the older generation talk about a lot, sort of in the 90s and early 2000s. I've heard of it, but I just assumed that perhaps, you know, it was old folklore or <laughs> stories of stories, if you know what I mean, passed down and didn't think there was much in it until I actually saw it with my own eyes recently. Okay. If you can take us through the incident, we're going to say just it's the Suffolk Marshes relatively near Aldborough. Yeah, that's right. I think had it been five years ago, we might talk about the precise location, but because that animal might still be there, we don't want it disturbed and we don't want the landowners having hassle. I think it's best to keep it pretty vague. Yeah, so take us through. It was about five minutes worth of a view, was it? Yeah, it was. Me and my wife were staying on a family holiday within that location. And we were on our way on a coastal walk back towards home, you know, the location we were staying at. And just perchance, I was looking over at some lovely marshy land, lovely nature. And I could see a black figure walking along a hedgerow which I thought was a cat. Initially, I was questioning myself and I pointed out to the missus, but she sort of confirmed it as well and was like, yeah, let's go and have a look. So that was how I initially spotted the cat. 
Did you have any disagreement amongst you as to what it could be? Did you go through alternative explanations or did you both quickly conclude it was something like a black panther, a big black cat? Well, I think your rationale sort of tells you, oh, it's a dog. It's got to be a dog. But it was just the way that it was moving was just so unusual for a dog. And me and the missus were looking at it thinking, well, that can't be a dog. And it was from those sort of questions that we were saying that we thought, oh, my word, let's go cross over the road and have a look at this thing. So we moved over for a closer look. And the longer we were looking at it, the more unbelievably obvious it was that it was a large black cat that we were looking at. Initially, the cat was nearer to us. And by the time I was taking the footage, the cat had moved to, I'd say, maybe about 600 yards away from us. But initially, it was about 300 yards or so away. I play a little bit of golf, so my yardage is reasonably sort of all right. But yeah, I would say it was a bit further than I could drive a golf ball. So I would say about 300 yards away initially. Mm -hmm. And it was the movement of the cat that stood out and its posture. Its stomach was low to the ground. So like with dogs, they're quite stiff-legged. Whereas this was very fluid, slinky, low to the ground, unusual looking animal. (laughs) that you just really would not expect, not not the natural movements of a dog at all. Did you see any key features? Did you see the shape of the head or the thickness of the legs or the, the uh, length of the tail or shoulder blades, anything like that? It was a lot of things initially. I mean, mainly the way it was moving, the shoulder blades and tail stood out quite a lot. So it was quite a long shape. Mm-hmm. The body size was about that of a large dog, perhaps even bigger. But it was so long, especially like the way its legs were reaching forward as it was sort of pulling its way along the hedgerow. It was very low and stealthy, which gave it a really long appearance, especially as it was like jet black. It was quite a bizarre spectacle to watch as it moved. Just sort of transfixed by it, to be honest, the whole time. As it was moving along the hedgerow, it sort of started to become a little bit bolder in its movements. So it started to go more sort of central into the marsh. So, yeah, I I did see it do a lot of behaviour up until the point where it was seizing or attempting to seize some geese that I didn't know were there at the time. But obviously they quickly departed upon us present. So that made me realise what it was doing. But I didn't know what it was doing until it had gone for the geese it was sort of fascinating to watch it make its way along the field towards the geese so it was doing that very deliberately because it was going to where they were landing is that the case the thing is i was had my eyes on the cat the whole time so i don't know what the geese were doing at the time it was more the cat The only time I became aware of the geese from my memory is from when the cat went for him and the geese panicked and took off in every which direction. On the lead up to the geese, I saw the cat elicit quite a few different behaviours. It was slinking along the hedgerow initially and then as it came out into the middle of the marsh, it started bounding. It was unbelievably agile. I'm aware of physicality and things because of the work I do and yeah, I'm a fitness instructor and my passion is sports 
So I'm really hypersensitive of movement and how things move as an extremely agile creature. <laughs> yeah, really agile. When we spoke before, you mentioned about the form and sleekness. Can you describe that form and sleekness? Because I was asking you to sort of relate it to black leopards on the web. You made the distinction between a panther and a black leopard. And when I searched in melanistic leopard, that was exactly the type of animal that I was looking at. This one wasn't like a great big black panther that you're led to believe in the stories I'd heard of old from Norfolk and Suffolk (laughs) of this mysterious panther. It was quite slender looking. The way it was reaching out when it was stealthily crawling along, it was just very slim and slender, big black hat. Yeah. Which is what they are. You know, they are fit for purpose, as it were. I think a lot of people, when they see them for real in the wild, are struck by how slim, slender and sleek they are. But of course, they need that agility, but they've got that explosive power as well, which presumably you sort of saw. No, I definitely saw it. So, and this is where the missus, that's what she most distinctly sort of remembers is when it was moving rapidly, it was quick and it doesn't run like a dog runs. It's just so much more natural it just takes off and it's just remarkably quick hence why i didn't even attempt to take any footage i mean that's the last thing on your mind obviously when you're observing something with your very eyes but the the way it was moving i had to keep an eye on it at times to track it across the field because it was moving quickly did you get the sense that it very much knew what it was doing it knew that environment it knew there were geese there to take advantage of and it had done that before and it was this is part of what it does on in its territory and it it knew the ropes do you think retrospectively yes so obviously once the geese took off i knew what it was doing but at the time i was just watching it thinking wow It was more just taking in all of the details. I wasn't thinking, what is it up to? I was just thinking, what is that? And (laughs) now that I know what it was doing, hunting the geese, I can backpedal from there and think, you know, it was hiding along that hedgerow. It must have been trying to avoid detection. And one of the things that it was doing too, it was zigzagging across the field and it was intermittently like stopping and turning its head. So it was sort of sitting upright, having a little look around. Then it would bound, you know, nine feet, ten feet another way. And it would turn its head again. And then it would zigzag the other way. I'd done that about three or four times as it was approaching towards the geese. I don't know if that if that makes any sense to you. To me, that was something that I distinctly remember as well. Well, it's interesting, I think, for two reasons. They do tend to, when they run, they tend to run in bursts. Yes. One of the reasons they do that is that they haven't got the stamina for a long chasing animal, like a cheetah chases its prey out in the open and sort of trips it up and catches up with it. Whereas things like a leopard is a, a short springy burst, like an ambush to ambush its prey or to spring upon it quickly from a short distance. So they just haven't got the sort of lung capacity stamina for long running. So they tend to go in short bursts anyway. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. From what I've seen, because it did go quick, stop, zigzag, go quick, stop. It was 
quite sporadic the movement so i saw it in those five minutes i saw a lot of behavior from the cat we haven't had many witnesses on this podcast talk about zigzag uh, movement but it does come across the number of witnesses I've heard from overall and sort of reading about their behaviour, it is part of their behaviour. And I think it's partly for vision and, and partly to get the right sort of angle on the prey, a right angle of, of entry and attack sort of thing. But it's also, I think, good for hearing, to get the lock on the hearing. I mean, it may be that it wasn't so crucial for the geese. but uh, So there's various reasons why they, mm. they might zigzag, but uh, they're very good to hear that you saw that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I can... Yeah, remember that very clearly. It made some attempts at the geese while you were watching, did it? It made one attempt at the geese. I've shown you that video, and that was sort of after it had bolted for the geese. So it got to within range of where the geese were. Obviously, at that point, I was unaware that there was geese there. Obviously, I'd seen geese flying in formation in my stay there, and you know, you see them taking off, and it's lovely and pretty. It reminds me of a fly away home like an old film from the 90s that i remember as a kid yes i know that one yeah it's a real <laughs> spectacle of the geese ascending and descending isn't it and the noise yeah very choreographed too when the geese sort of took off in every which direction and they were making such a racket it was unbelievable that was just prior to that as the cat was approaching it bolted directly for the geese like a shot the geese took off and then the cat just sort of was hanging around in some long grass looking sorry for herself. And that was when I was fumbling around, putting my password in on my iPhone to try and capture that footage that I sent over to you. And then it sort of just slinked off into a ditch after that. I don't know whether to wait for the geese to return. But yeah, the geese were sort of flying above, but they weren't going off anywhere. That's the other thing I can remember. The geese were up in the air above where the cat was, just making loads of racket, but they weren't going anywhere, if that makes sense. They were staying in the vicinity. It was behaviour that I've never seen from geese, but then again, I'm not a naturalist. I'm very much a townie. I'm not a twitcher or anything like that. So, yeah, I can just say what I saw, really. So it sounds like it sent them up and they weren't prepared to come down because they knew something was prepared to attack them. Is that right, do you think? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. It must have got pretty near to the geese because when the cat bolted from where the cat was, the geese took off. So the two and two together, it's just that was definitely what it was doing the whole time. Like I say, when you backpedal through what I was seeing, it just makes total sense that that cat knew those geese were there and it was making its way slowly and steadily towards them, waited for a moment failed and then hung around in the long grass before slinking off it's interesting that it doesn't seem to have targeted one often when there's a group of prey like like a sheep or something or or some deer they tend to just observe for a while invisibly without the prey noticing and then decide on the one that they think is their target and absolutely go for that absolutely straight for it but maybe geese are a bit different. Maybe it was trying to cause some confusion and see if they scattered and one you know, came within grasp, as yeah. it were. It's difficult to know the strategy, isn't it? It didn't seem to be targeting one. No, this is obviously 600 yards away at this point. Yeah. <laughs> so it may have done, Rick, I don't know. But it, from where I was standing, it looked like it was bolting for a load of geese and they just took off. And then it just looked pretty miffed. <laughs> but again, this was pretty far away. 
again the sighting was at dusk and it was cold November night recently and the sea mist as well being slap bang next to the coast it was quite hard to totally say for certainty like what it was doing at that point it was quite far away you were saying to me before we spoke before we came on tonight you got a better view and we've heard this from other witnesses who've tried video footage on the phone and found that the phone's zoom is not not up to much which is is the case unfortunately (laughs) but you got a better view directly live as the phone was running and of course the phone was fighting you know the dusk Yeah, no, absolutely. It was pure guesswork. I couldn't see the cat at all on the footage as I was holding the phone up. And I remember just thinking, how annoying is it that I've stood here for five minutes looking at this with my wife next to me? We're both talking the whole time. Look at this cat, oh my word. And then, you know, you get a few seconds of dismal footage, but (laughs) such is the case. So you've told me since that it's pretty difficult to catch this stuff. Well, we've got the sound. It's lovely to hear you say the geese are going mental. (laughs) (laughs) So they were freaking out because they knew that the panther was potentially not good news. Yeah, it was just sheer panic. That's what it sounded like. You know, shriek, 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 and going off in every which direction, but just being up above in the sky, just above where it happened, yeah. We're going to come back in a minute to ask you how you felt about it, about watching the spectacle of nature with a predator in Britain. But you've been able to speak to Matt Salisbury. We heard from Matt on our Beasts from the East podcast edition because he's one of the guys who's taken sightings and documented reports in Suffolk and East Anglia for many years. So if anybody was going to know of any other nearby sightings, he might have done. So how did that go? What did he have to say? Well, he was quite a fascinating chap to talk to, to be honest. His local knowledge was astounding. He seems to know every single nook and cranny of Suffolk. I'm Ipswich born and bred, and some places feel like the back and beyond to me, but he, he just knew everywhere around that area. And Dunwich Heath was the one that sort of came up quite a lot. He said there was a lot of sightings around Dunwich Heath, which is neighbouring to where this incident was. So that was quite affirming to hear that. <laughs> you know, you think, you think, am I the only one? But he, he said, you know, he's had over a hundred people in Suffolk come forward saying they've seen these big cats. Yeah, over the years. Yeah. So it's very reassuring to know <laughs> to know that I'm I'm not the only one in that way. And he spoke a lot too of the links, quite a lot in detail, which was interesting to hear too about those and them being shot in the local vicinity and things like that. Well, I'm very pleased that you've spoken to him and he's got this documented now for his database because it's important that you go to the main man in Suffolk. Uh, Certainly I and some of my key contacts have heard, particularly in wintertime, autumn and winter, of these cats on marshes or nature reserves which are, have got sort of water's edge which have got overwintering geese which arriving in the autumn and you're thinking mm-hmm. is this a seasonal thing that these cats would know that there are rich pickings there are more water birds and geese on these environments through the autumn and winter months because they overwinter here and that they would be vulnerable in the summertime it's not such a good environment for that so are we getting winter observations of these cats for that reason and here we have you actually saying it was definitely targeting the geese so it's a very important part of the jigsaw that you've added to i think yeah no i'm pleased i mean had the sight and been for a few seconds or something 
it might have been a bit different me coming forward but because it was for so long I feel so lucky to have had that experience especially with my wife next to me as well we're both spoken about it a lot together you just feel like well I have to come forward so other people can be privy to this information now we're not going to say the name of the organization that would be unfair but you did tell a wildlife organization so can you tell us a bit about how that went yeah no absolutely so this has sort of led me on to reaching out and finding further contacts to be honest so i called up the organization in question i spoke to a lady on the phone and described the incident thinking instantly i was going to be dismissed or you know shot down Mm. but she had a lot of questions and I got the impression, and I know it's hard to say, but over the phone, I got the impression that she was almost speaking through a smile, like she sort of knew something about what I was saying, or she'd heard of it before. It wasn't a total novel idea to her that there are perhaps big cats out there on these nature reserves. Yeah, after that phone call was when I started to get in contact with other big cat people that I was finding on the internet after searching in. What do you do if you find a big cat in the UK? Well, that is good, isn't it? That is heartening, actually, that, you know, you got the vibes that she was, she didn't seem up in arms about it. Not dismissive at all, but um, she didn't explicitly say, oh, yeah, you know, we've seen these before. Nothing like that. She just was totally not dismissive. A lot of the questions she was asking seemed like she had some knowledge of what she was talking about. It wasn't just, you know, I'd gotten through to anyone and they were just saying, oh, you know, what do we do about this? She seemed to know the right questions to ask and things. And yeah, I just came away from the conversation thinking, "Hmm, I wonder if she's dealt with this before then. (laughs) It's important, I think, that those people do get to hear of credible sightings, because if they're sort of trying to think about what's going on, behind the scenes as it were and under the radar it's useful for them and you're reminding me actually now and I again I don't want to name this organization but I heard of one in fact it was with my friend Frank Tunbridge I know you tried to phone Frank and Frank checked that I'd spoken to you and was happy that I'd spoken to you and he can now listen to this on the podcast but he actually had a report from a nature reserve quite near me actually only about five miles from me that was when this nature reserve has more geese and uh, water birds on it. The witnesses of that one also saw when the Black Panther had gone, they were sitting in the car park and saw it from a field uh, as you approached the more marshy, wetter bits. And when it went, about five minutes later, a domestic cat came out as well. So they were able to see the difference in the scale and, and the domestic cat really helped confirm that what they'd seen first was indeed a very big Black Panther size that sort of thing they phoned up the wildlife body that owns that nature reserve and i think it must have been the attitude of the person on the phone that they spoke to and were told it must have been the trick of the light i did get a scoffing response there's no sort of corporate line and but they were so put off and so irritated by that attitude and so confident in what they seen that they cancelled their membership of that body immediately that was the lesson there (laughs) They got their own back in the end then. I don't really like having to mention that one, but it is a contrast to the attitude you got, perhaps. No, absolutely. This one was quite different in that respect. And it's interesting what you say about the trick of the lighting, because that was, you talked about, oh, how sure were you that it was a cat? That was one of the things that pops into your head, right? It's not a dog. It it looks like a cat. Could it be the lighting? But it's 
because the sighting was so long and I saw the cat from so many different angles, like you say, it was zigzagging, it was doing this, it was doing that. Light with a jet black animal doesn't really interfere too much as long as you've got enough to see the shape of it. Do you know what I mean? I think you were lucky seeing the different angles. Mm, Definitely helped with the size and proportion and there's no doubt about it. Me and my missus were both there the whole time we're, we're just certain it was a cat. There's just no two ways about it. Yeah. I've got one other marshland observation. In fact, I wrote this into my book, actually. I was actually in the Isle of Sheppey in Kent on a field trip to look at some marshes there where the farmer has a, an important wildlife agreement, a nature reserve agreement, especially for lapwings, amongst other things. And we were waiting to meet up with him and the four of us. and it really did look incongruous and odd and strange. And there was this mastiff dog completely lost and looking out of sorts in the marshes. We all looked at it. And I was into big cats at that time. And I suddenly thought, I'm not going to blurt out what I think that is and what I know that is, because I'm just (laughs) going to see what they say, because it'll be very interesting. And they all immediately said, look at that dog. Doesn't it look lost and forlorn? Yeah. And yeah. And I thought, now, if that had been a black panther there, it would look so different. Yeah. I say in my book, actually, it was the best big cat sighting, which wasn't a big cat sighting that I'd ever had, because it it was almost <laughs> like the, your yardstick that you judge the real thing by. Yeah, yeah, no, I get that. Absolutely. It was so out of sorts. It was so undynamic, unfluid, wooden, and looking, why am I here sort of thing? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I grew up around dogs and I'm a big lover of dogs and yeah you can just tell the difference between a cat and a dog and it's just so glaringly obvious the dogs are so stiff-legged you can see all the space and air underneath their undercarriage whereas these cats when you see them they're just so low to the ground so stealthy and yeah such a big difference right off the bat you can just tell what you're looking at you being a fitness instructor probably don't know this but one of the things that leopards are often likened to is a gymnast yeah no absolutely when it bounded to all its feet were together and that's the other thing that stands out in your mind gymnasts are always scored on how they land <laughs> like you know with very zero movement whereas this cat it was jumping quite a distance but when it landed all its paws were together it was in a seated position when it was swiveling its little head round, having a listen so yeah gymnast is a good good way of describing it (laughs) yeah did you see the different ways in which it held its tail much or was it too difficult to see at that distance no no you could see the tail the tail was um long just as you'd expect of a big cat i'm sure you've heard it all before rick you know long curly exactly textbook pantheresque tail (laughs) like a counterbalance when it bolted it was straight out back you know, like when you see sprinters sprint with their fingers all straight, you know, gunning it. It was the tail was nice and rigid and back. And when the cat was moving around and slinking, you could really just see it delicately wafting around. Yeah. Even thinking about it now is bringing that shock back because, like you say, it's so, so incredible to see a big cat in, in that situation in, in the place where you used to have fish and chips with your nana. <laughs> just such an unusual sight yeah incredible adding to the frustration that you didn't get a good footage oh no don't don't bring it up don't mention it next time i mean now you were saying how much it did affect you 
Tell us about the other wildlife sort of observation in your life that is a lasting memory, and this compares with it. That'd be nice to hear, because you told me this on the phone first. Yeah, it's nice that you remembered. So one of the luckiest times of my life, really, I, I went out to the Caribbean with some close family friends, and we went to Dominica, which is the nature island of the Caribbean. So it's just an untouched, lovely, green, beautiful, natural island. And we went whale watching. So we went out onto a boat and we were told the chances of seeing these whales now are quite slim. And while we were out and about, they caught sight and said, there she blows. And off we went towards it. And we saw a mother whale and this little calf in the water. And it was just absolutely serene and beautiful. We saw it breach and dive. Like the water was like glass where it had been. The chap said this sort of like a footprint of where they dive that will stay there for quite a while when it was just nature and that was one of the moments that really stand out in my mind I think that's you know other than my wedding day in case my wife's listening through the wall <laughs> yeah that stands out in my mind the most to be honest it was such a humbling experience to be near something that beautiful yeah 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 in its own place doing its own thing with its young yeah, no, absolutely. The fact that it had a calf there as well, we're just, again, that luckiness feeling, like you feel so lucky to be near that and to have such a lengthy sighting of something so totally unexpected, just catching you totally unaware, just reminded me of that feeling where you're just in awe of what you're seeing. You know, no camera or phone or anything can capture it. You're just there in that moment, just open mouthed and eyes wide open as well do you feel moved to return i mean the chances of seeing it again i think are very very slim but i hear this quite a bit and it's quite understandable i think that people who have long sightings or profound sightings or memorable sightings of these cats quite a few of them do return to see if they you know get lucky again is that occurred to you yeah no absolutely i just want to go back and just have a look at where I was and just take it all in again and try and you know sometimes when you're in the area new things that you remember sort of spring back to you and yeah my brother-in-law when I told him about it obviously when we got back to the accommodation on holiday I said oh you won't believe what me and Ru have just said and he was like oh really and he totally believes me my brother-in-law he knows that I'd never tell him a lie do you know what I mean so he was absolutely on it he was like should we go back and look for it? And by that point, it was obviously pitch black. I mean, it was getting near pitch black at the end of the site and it was about 20 past four. So there's only a few minutes a day like left. So by the time we traipsed back to the accommodation, it was pitch black. He's like, should we go back and have a look for it? It's just like, I don't think that's going to be there, mate. No chance of seeing it now. But yeah, since then, we've actually spoke about going back there and perhaps having a little poke about and seeing if there is anything. Because like you say, you just... You can't seem to let it go. It sticks with you and you you want answers to something that, you know, perhaps there aren't answers to. You've seen it and perhaps that was, you know, I've got to count myself lucky that I've seen it and I've had that experience, both me and the wife, you know, it's just incredible. I think one of the most extreme examples I know of people who went back were people who had a 13-minute observation of one in Gloucestershire and they didn't have mobile phones. Oh, phone. my word. And it was quite close to them. They reckon it was foraging for rabbits. It was patrolling this edge of this field. 
in the valleys around Stroud, which is a great area for sightings, and they knew nothing about it at the time. And But the chairman of the parish council guy saw one independently about a year later, about quarter of a mile from this spot sort of corroborate it sort of thing but anyway they they were so affected by this that they would go back every week at friday afternoon at the same time until the season got a bit darker because of the season changing but just craving another sighting of a cat it was such a profound event in their lives at the time incredible experience yeah i mean i I can totally get that to be honest i can really get that yeah i just think it's something where you know it's so rare. I am realistic with what I've seen. I'm I'm like, you know, the chances of seeing that again in the UK are minimal. I'm not going to be out there every week and I've got other things to do. <laughs> but just the fact that when you're on a holiday and it was just the pinnacle of the holiday, really seeing that, that cat there. But, but hats off to them. <laughs> yeah. Have you told people who don't believe you? I have, yeah. How does that make you feel? Not not the greatest it's frustrating that people are not very open-minded i think people are polarized well not polarized it's the wrong word mm. but people either accept it and just go yeah i've just had people with that's frustrated me more than the people that say no to be honest i've said i've seen a massive black cat i saw it for five minutes and people are like yeah my mates are one and it's like oh <laughs> like yeah but can i tell you about it and they just don't you know i'd rather them just tell me to clear off and that i'm a nutcase <laughs> It's the so what attitude, isn't it? Yes, I believe you, but so what? Yeah, I've come across a lot of that. So um, I spoke to my friend Steve, he's a deaf chap. He's a lovely bloke, me and him are gym partners. I had a chat to him when I was next in the gym after holiday, and I said, you, you ain't going to believe what I see at the risky now. He said, oh, yeah, um, my buddy saw one. And he sort of described the whole incident to me. He said, oh, he's in the paper because of it and this and that. And I was like, oh, right, okay. I just wanted him to sort of be more curious, but he sort of just didn't really seem that interested. Like, yeah, so what? Like, it happens. <laughs> you're right. It is infuriating. You think it deserves a better reaction than you're giving it. Maybe that's why I was lucky, Rick. Maybe that's why I was meant to see it. I don't know, a little bit of fate. I looked over at the right time, caught this this figure at the right time, and maybe it's because I am naturally curious and perhaps it's because it's had such an impact on me perhaps it was me that was meant to see it that's sort of how I feel sort of you know a week on from the incident the people who don't believe you what do you make of the people who don't believe you I mean there's an element of I would struggle to believe before seeing it like I'd heard the stories myself I'd struggle with it I'm not having a great deal of knowledge about nature. This has given me an opportunity to talk to people like yourself and other people that have an understanding of, you know, the temperature, the ecosystem in Britain and how it could sustain these cats. So, like, thinking about, well, there's geese, you know, there's deer. Why couldn't a cat live in England? Of course it could. Yeah, and we don't have freezing cold winters like, um, say, mountain lions in the western states of America have to cope with minus 20, minus 30 degrees, and they're sometimes bringing up their young in those conditions. Absolutely. That's been the biggest, uh, sort of like almost like an epiphany. Once you've seen it, you've, you've thought, yeah, why would you even like not think that these things are about? They could live reasonably comfortably here. So, yeah, I quite believe all the sightings. Since I've seen it, it's sort of like the sightings that I hear of where the footage is poor or it's just literally eyewitnesses. I'm thinking, I bet they did see it. It's weird how you all of a sudden, 
your perception of what is around you and what you believe to be around you, you know, until you see it, you don't know, do you? Yes. I think you've got to be careful you don't switch too much the other way and believe absolutely everything. You've got to keep objectivity. Mm. And I think being open-minded about things is, is a very healthy, actually, state to be in. Yeah, no, absolutely. Rue isn't joining in, but you were saying she'd largely reinforce, obviously, what you saw because she was a fellow witness with you, your wife, but she wasn't quite as sort of emotionally struck by it as you were. Again, it proves that not everybody feels quite the same, but... Yeah, she's not trying to sort of um, turn it over and make sense of it like you are so much, you were saying. No, and to be fair, they say opposites attract. So I think if we were both going cat mad right now, I think it'd be too much to bear. (laughs) But yeah, she's just like, yeah, so what? We saw it, you know, like count yourself lucky sort of thing. Whereas I'm sort of one of them people that are like, yeah, but people, no no one will believe me. And oh, so frustrating that I didn't get the footage and that's what's torturing me about it. Well, what was torturing me about it, obviously since I've had some pretty good conversations with people. And with Rue, she was just so, yeah, wow, we saw it. So what? You can't change it. We've seen it now. Like, we know they're about, you know, like... Get over it. But yeah, it's just funny how, how we had two almost polar opposite reactions to it emotionally. Obviously, she was shocked as I was. When we got back, you know, we was talking about it for for the first few days, but then her acceptance was a lot more quicker, whereas I sort of felt like I had to have some information just to help me process what it was that I saw, if you know what I mean, and witnessed. And, yeah, it's just funny, the two reactions. Yeah, so she probably wouldn't have reported it to anybody like Matt Salisbury, who's one of the, you know, the recorder for East Anglia and Suffolk. It would stay no. with her, and she's not so bothered about um, relaying it to people, which is fine. There's no right or wrong about this. It's Everybody's got their own perspective. To be fair, Rue has um, spoken a lot with her workmates. So Rue was a lot more relaxed in terms of talking to people she knew about what she'd done, whereas I wanted to talk to people who had some information that, that I could discuss it with, if you know what I mean, whereas Rue was relaying the information to workmates, colleagues, who all were like, yep, okay, you know that that response that I mentioned earlier. So she's definitely talking about it and stuff um, with people that she knows, whereas I wanted to take it that step further and just, I think it's like closure. When you have an event and something shocks you and startles you that much, you're sort of looking for closure afterwards. And that's the only way I can describe it. You know, talking to yourself has, has really helped me compartmentalise what I've seen and helped me just think, yep, you know, I was lucky and just make peace with, with what has happened. Make some kind of sense of it. Mm. Do you feel protective of it? If you knew that actually organisations or people knew that they were around and thought, we can't actually put up with this, you know, that they could be taking people's dogs or, you know, we can't have a big predator lurking in the marshes and near where people go on holiday, we've got to do something about it. Would you feel disappointed and would you want to prevent any kind of hostile intervention or, or are you not bothered or have you got any emotional commitment to the cat that you saw? Now, that's a very good question because there's there's bits of you that want to say, yeah, you want to protect them, you want to take care of them. I mean, my my thing is do no harm. So if something's there, it's not... I believe that things don't hurt you. Mm. You know, like, if you stand your ground, these things will go away. And I believe that, you know, you should leave nature to do its thing. 
However, if I was on a farm and someone had a shotgun and you could get some a dead cat as evidence that you're not crazy, that would be interesting if someone could capture one of these and have that evidence. But I don't know if that's wicked me saying that. Do you know what I mean? But if you could get evidence by not killing it, would you prefer that? Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. But I, I feel that like people have to see and touch things to to believe that they're there. I feel like you can get all the evidence in the world, all the footage in the world, and people will still go, oh, you photoshopped that. Oh, you know, that's just a funny angle. Or I think even if you've got quite compelling video evidence, unless you can see or smell it or see it yourself, people aren't going to believe it. That's what I meant by that, Rick. I didn't mean let's go out and shoot all the cats. Yes, <laughs> sure. No, I understand. So however it happened, a dead one would be convenient sort of thing a dead one that you could display yeah i don't know i i would worry about my children perhaps if they're out but then if someone leaves their children unattended in a field in the middle of nowhere <laughs> i think that's natural selection anyway in terms of the concept of them just being out in the wild and part of our ecosystem are you happy with that or would you unhappy or i think it's fantastic if that is the case and there are breeding populations of these cats, which I quite believe after what I've seen, I think that would be an awesome thing that we should be really proud of, really, and protect it. If they're not causing any harm, which it doesn't seem like they are, apart from the occasional bit of livestock, yeah, why not? Like, yes, yeah, absolutely brilliant. Do no harm is, is my saying. OK, it may well be happening each time and not looking at some bumbling one that's fresh out of captivity or freshly escaped it does seem it's wild and has bred and grown up here knows the environment so and confident yeah no absolutely so um like putting together sort of the pieces of just my experience like you say hearing the older stories of these cats and thinking this is a few generations on now and what i've seen personally with my eyes yeah Maybe they are naturalised, maybe they are in the environment, you know, out there in some low numbers, and if you're lucky enough, you might see one. Great. Well, it's so nice to um, have uh, another report from Suffolk um, so soon after having our discussion with Matt Salisbury and in the marshes as well. I don't know if you've heard the one we did from Wirral, the episode we did from the Wirral Peninsula, west of Merseyside, a few editions back. There's a lot of sightings in the Wirral recently. It may have been in the past and they just haven't been reported. But the Wirral, of course, has got marshland, especially on the western side of it. And yeah. the people we spoke to there were thinking that is a key refuge as part of Obviously, it's got woodland and other places that cats would hang out in as well. But the marshland environment of the Wirral was reckoned to be one of the key spots. So equivalent to what you've experienced, perhaps. Yeah, that no, sounds logical. Any final point you'd like to make that you don't think we've covered? I, th I think we've ticked everything on our checklist, but you know, your chance to raise anything further. I'm having a good old think about it, Rick, because I, I would like to, to sort of say a bit more. I mean, because I saw it for so long, I just feel like every time I revisit the memory, it's just such a long sight, and if you know what I mean. And if Rue was here, any points that she would have made, do you think, that um, you haven't, or that would be slightly different from yours, other than that, she was happy to move on more quickly than you are from it. The thing was, when I was getting my phone out to record the cat, I remember Rue was saying, cool, look at the cat move, look at the cat move. So I think she was really taken back by how quick the cat was when it was bolting. That was the one thing she was like, I can't believe how quick it was on the walk back. She was 
saying, well, it's got to be a cat. What else could move that quick? So that that was the thing that stood out to her the most. Like when we were talking about it, she was really taken back by when it decided to move, it, it really went for it. So, yeah, I think that would be where she would chime in the most because, yeah, she was almost like taken away by it. Her breath was sort of taken away when it was bolted. I, could, I remember being near her and hearing her breathing, you know, all your senses are sort of up and alert. And so, yeah, she was absolutely gobsmacked by it. She's absolutely loves nature. Rue, she's such a kind-hearted, lovely woman. She just loves animals. If there's a spider in the house, I've got to put it in a cup and put it, put a bit of paper under it and chuck it out of the window, you know. <laughs> she loves nature, so... You know, I just feel like perhaps we were meant to see it, you know. I'm naturally curious and she she loves animals and perhaps it was us that was meant to see that animal that day. Yeah. How would you feel if you read a report in the local newspaper that said um, dog walker finds lost black Labrador after weekend search for <laughs> it and it was the date that you saw that animal? Would you believe it? could have been anything different or would you be deflated and think oh we got that wrong i am absolutely 100 percent certain that what i saw was a large black cat 100 percent, and not a domestic cat not a dog it was a big black cat 100 percent i'm only sort of teasing you really with that that question i know you are you triggered me with that one rick it's funny how often it happens actually because many times that people have reports in the local newspaper there's always it's always in a location where somebody walks a black dog the owners will just say oh no it was obviously my rover or my duke you know the dog just assuming that they're mistaken but of course the benefit of this one also is that it was in such a wild environment it's back to where that dog i saw on the on the marshes in sheppey in kent that was a rare situation to see a dog in that environment subconsciously like you know cast in mind back that's probably why the cat stood out initially because if you're going to walk your dog on a Saturday you'd probably do it when it was a bit brighter a bit nicer do you know what I mean like it was we was on a quick brief walk home you know we didn't really want to stay out in the freezing cold and until we saw the cat and then we thought oh, what's another five minutes going to do do you know what I mean wanted to stay there long afterwards isn't it really but yeah um, definitely definitely not a dog or a, or a domestic cat mate no way no way Great. Okay. I'm sure listeners really appreciated that. It's a very interesting, intriguing case, and your descriptions have been uh, very vivid and very helpful. Obviously, you'll keep in touch with Matt Salisbury, and it's lovely that Matt's got that for his database. Absolutely. And Matt Matt was mentioning um, that he's sort of collected a few stories about Suffolk cats and eyewitness accounts, and he's compiling a book at the moment. And I think he did mention, obviously, because it was such a a long eyewitness account that I had that he was, you know, quite keen to get involved in in his book as well. So with people such as yourself, Matt, and because you're open-minded and you're used to hearing about it, like I'm willing to give that information no end, if you know what I mean. It's not exactly like it's going in the papers or anything. So No, we're not sending a posse round to to have a go at it. We're keeping the, the location relatively vague. Really grateful for all of your information. Thanks ever so much for coming on Big Cat Conversations. All the best, Fraser. Yeah, yeah, you too. Take care. Bye-bye.
Okay, just one final point on Fraser's experience and his feedback to me. And this gives us an excuse to mention the YouTube channel called Luna the Pantera. I sent links to that to Fraser for some of his references on Black Leopards. As some of you may know, on that YouTube channel, Luna is a young black leopard being cared for and filmed sometimes by a couple in Siberia after she was rejected by her mother in a zoo there when she was a few days old. There are several YouTube videos of Luna on her walks and having her enrichment and playing with a dog that she has grown up with. And these are fun to watch and helpful to see for examples of the form and the movement of a black leopard. Frazier said he found those video clips really informative. In fact, he said he got goosebumps comparing those to the animal he had seen. We put a link to Luna's channel on the Big Cat Conversations website, or just try a web search for Luna the Pantera or Luna the Black Leopard and you should find it. Now, if you are listening on schedule, we are approaching Christmas 2021, and if you'd like a book recommendation for your Prezi's list, well, a recent new book to consider is Leopard Diaries, The Rosette in India. We put a link to it on our website under episode 65, as well as a link to a video presentation on leopards in India from the author, who is Sanjay Gubby. He writes with great authority because the book reports his experience from over 10 years practical work on monitoring leopards, and he advises organisations and communities about living alongside leopards. The other reason I'd recommend the book is that we have some great news in that Sanji Gubby, the author, will be a guest with us on the podcast in the new year. If anyone has time to read or dip into the book by the end of December and you want to email me a question or a point to put to Sanjay for the recording in January, do feel free to get in touch. We'll be chatting to Sanjay about leopard behaviour in particular, but we'll also ask him about tracking and how he sets up his trail cameras. We'll also discover what happened when he was injured by a leopard he was trying to capture when it got stuck in some school buildings one Sunday. So the book recommendation is Leopard Diaries by Sanjay Gubby. We look forward to hearing from him in the new year. Meanwhile, we have an episode coming out around Christmas time. That one will be a bit of a mixed bag as we have three guests together in a group conversation. Within our discussion, we'll cover the recent video footage from Northwest Norfolk and the separate close-by sighting on the same day because we'll be speaking with one of those witnesses. We're also going to touch on how this subject, Big Cats Living Wild in Britain, can influence people's mental health, especially in a positive way, perhaps. We sometimes just touch on mental health issues indirectly, but we'll dig a little deeper into that next time as a small part of the show. Now, to our words of the week, and they relate to the black leopard in Java in Indonesia. It's topical to mention Java because, as we can see in the news at the moment, one of Java's volcanoes, Mount Semeru, started erupting on 4th of December and has been pretty volatile, destroying nearby homes and taking out an important bridge and, alas, there have been several fatalities. In Java, around half of the leopards there are melanistic or black and our words of the week are simply the local name for black leopards in Java. And this information comes from Sanjay Gubby's book that we've just mentioned, he notes that in Java, the black leopards are given a different name to the normal coloured leopards. So, an indigenous name for black leopards there is Makan Kumbang, 
while the normal coloured leopard is Macan Tutul. The word Macan on its own means tiger, but the plot thickens because another local name for black leopard in Java is Haremu Kumbang, while the normal coloured leopard is Haremu Bintang, and the word Haremu again means tiger on its own. So the consistent word in this mix seems to be Kumbang. That actually means bee or beetle. So why might bees or beetles have gained an association with the black leopard? I'm speculating that it's because of the iridescence, especially of a beetle, the black but still colourful oily-like shine that you see on some beetles. And that might be associated with the sheen of a black leopard's coat. That's my hunch anyway. Maybe the tiger part of these names emphasises how local people and local cultures have through time simply linked tigers and leopards as they've experienced those same two cats in the same general environment so regard them as a big stealthy cat in the forest. So word of the week from Java is kumbang, a beetle, a bee or a black leopard. But perhaps there is an important wider point to consider here and that is the pressure that black leopards are under in their own official strongholds in the world, in Java and in the Malay Peninsula. Here in Britain, some of us consider that black leopards are naturalising, but meanwhile we should spare a thought for the poaching and the habitat pressures that black leopards face in their official countries. We'll try to look into these issues and learn more about the black leopards in Malay Peninsula and in Java on this podcast in the future. Maybe we'll also find out exactly why the Javan black leopard is called literally the tiger beetle. We are closing out now, so many thanks again to Fraser, our guest, for his input. Watch this space for the next edition around Christmas time. Meantime, have a great Christmas and Yuletide, and thanks everyone for supporting the show through the year. Take care and bye for now. <laughs>